Good evening. How's everyone? Good. I'm good. Thanks for asking. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm uh, excited to be preaching from Psalm chapter 2. Josh asked me if I, would, if I wanted to preach tonight on, uh, I don't know when it was, Monday or something, maybe Sunday of, of this past week. Um, and really the hardest part about preaching, you may not believe this or not if you've never preached before, but really the hardest part about preaching is deciding what you're going to preach about. Especially the way, the way that we preach here, by just by preaching the, the Bible, not preaching topically, um, once you decide kind of what, what Bible passage you're going to preach on, it's, it's, it's not easy, but, but from then it, it, it's pretty, pretty straightforward because you're just trying to understand, well, what does this uh, passage mean? What do these verses mean? And then how can I explain that and how can I give examples of that? Um, and and how, to, how to, can I apply that to, to our lives? Um, but, the, but the beginning part of deciding, especially if you're not going through a book like First Peter, so, so Josh already knows what he's going to preach about next Sunday. It'll be the, the next section of First Peter. Uh, chapter one, but if you're if you're not preaching regularly through a series like that or something the, the way that we do on Sunday nights, it's it's kind of kind of hard to uh, to come up with with what you want to preach about sometimes. And so we were we were here Sunday night, and uh, in or, I'm sorry on Wednesday night, and our, our discussion we kind of talked about Psalm two for a few minutes, and, and that, especially that passage at the end, uh, the verse at the end about I'll ask and I'll give the nations to you, and what does that mean, and why do we put that on on T-shirts for mission trips and, and things like that. And so I got to thinking Wednesday night, um, why don't I just preach on Psalm 2? That'll make my life easier because it'll decide what I'm going to preach about and, uh, and, and hopefully try to answer that question that we came up with Wednesday night. So that's what we're going to do. And I'm, I'm, I'm really pretty, pretty excited about it. This is, has, has become one of my favorite psalms um, over the last uh, three or four days since, uh, since Wednesday night. Um, and and I'm, I'm borrowing from, from someone else, a friend of mine who, um, who's preached this before, but I want to kind of, kind of agree with him and, and say the same thing. Um, the, the difficulty tonight with, with this Psalm 2 is not, is not deciding what to say or not, not trying to find something to say, right? The difficulty is um, trying to present this um, as, as big and powerful and, and, and beautiful as, as it is, um, my, my friend used the, used the imagery of like, a, like holding a diamond up to a, up to a light and, and turning it and, and, and moving it around in different ways to try to be able to, to make sure that, that all the different facets and all the different cuts of that diamond sparkle in the, in the light. And so that's what, what I'm trying to do here tonight with this psalm um, as well. So I'll begin uh, and just read through the psalm and then we'll, we'll look at it and kind of break it into a, to a few sections. Why do the nations rage... And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The, Lord's hold, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father God, we are 
uh, thankful to you tonight that we can come and, and hear you speak to us. And, and God, we want to say that's what's happening. When we read the Bible, God, we believe that that is literally you speaking to us, your church, your people. And so, God, I pray tonight that your voice will be clear. I pray tonight that your words will be clear. Father, I pray that we would understand them correctly by the power of your Holy Spirit working inside of us. And God, I pray that, that you would help us to apply them uh, to our lives clearly and, and faithfully. And then, God, I pray that, that you would give us grace and, and power and wisdom to, to, to live these words out. Father, to live as your people, subjects to our King, the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, Psalm 2 doesn't really tell us who wrote it, uh, but if we flip over to Acts chapter 4, I'm not going to ask you to do that. We may look at that passage uh, a little bit later. But if we flip over to, to Psalm, uh, I'm sorry, to Acts chapter 4, in verses 24 and 25, it tells us there that David wrote this psalm. In verses 24 and 25 of Acts chapter 4, it says, Our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then, and then they, it quotes a couple of, of verses from Psalm chapter 2. And so we believe on, on the authority of the, uh, of the New Testament writers and the, and the apostles there uh, preaching in Acts that, that Psalm 2 was written by, by David, the king of Israel. And, and he was writing it, no doubt, um, uh, about the, the kingdom of Israel and, and about the king of Israel himself and, and then his descendants. Uh, but I think, I think much more than that, it speaks very clearly to um, the ultimate Davidic king, Jesus, our, our Lord. If you're not familiar with the, with the passage in, in Samuel, David uh, was, the, was the king of Israel, and God came to, came to, to, to David and, and promised David, David was going to build a house for God. He was going to build a temple for God to live in. And God said, no, I don't want you to do that. He said, instead, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a, um, I'm going to build you a, a house in the sense of, like we would say, that the king of England or the queen of England is from the house of Windsor. Right from the family of, of Windsor. And he says, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a family. I'm going to build you a legacy. And, and he said even, I promise you that you will have a descendant reigning on the throne forever. Um, and, and we know today as, as believers in, in Jesus and reading through the New Testament, we know that that descendant of David is Jesus himself. Jesus is a, a descendant of David, and he's the one who is on the throne forever. And so I want to look at this psalm and kind of look at it in, in, in three, different, um, three different sections. The first section is in verses 1, 2, and 3. And verses 1, 2, and 3 tell us something about worldly, worldly rulers. Um, and then verses 4 through 9 talk to us about who God's ruler is. And then verses 10, 11, and 12 at the end um, talk to us, speak to us about what our right response is. Our rightful response to our king should be. But firstly, look at, look at verses 1, 2, and and three, David presents these 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 uh, these worldly rulers, these worldly kings. Um, he he, he kind of wonders at the way that, that they're reacting to God, and, and the way that they're he, he's kind of marveling at them. He says, "Why do the nations rage, and why do the peoples plot?" And, and then he adds that, that that phrase, "In vain." Their plotting is in vain. Their raging is is in vain. And we'll talk about that. But he's it's it's a wonder to him that that the people are acting this way. It's, it's unbelievable in some, in some ways. It's insane that they would come at God this way. Why do the nations rage and why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And it tells them what they're, what they're saying there. It's, a, it's, it's, it's insane. It's, it's unbelievable. And, and yet it's not surprising. 
right? It shouldn't be surprising to us, uh, people who know our Bibles, people who know our, our, our history, even people who know our own lives. It shouldn't be surprising to us at all. It's always, it's always been this way, right? Think back to the very beginning in, in the garden, Adam and Eve. God created Adam and Eve there, uh, and yet they're not alone. There's a serpent, and the serpent is raging against God. The serpent is raging against the, the order that God has, has set up, right? Think even just a, just a few chapters after that to Noah, Noah, he's building the ark, and all the people around him are jeering at him, and they're making fun of him, and they're not doing what he's saying. He's, he's proclaiming them, he's preaching them, repent, for judgment is coming, and they're not listening. And, and he builds this, this ark. And, and then we go just a few, a few chapters later, and we have Pharaoh and Moses. And Pharaoh is, is killing all the baby boys, coming against God's promise, coming against God's kingdom. We can go further. If you're in, in Sunday school right now, um, one of the adult classes, and you're using the Lifeway material, we've been studying through the books of Esther and then Ezra and Nehemiah. The, in, in the book of Esther, uh, part, of, part of what the story is about is this man named Haman who's developing this whole plot, this whole plan to destroy the people of Israel, to destroy the Jewish people, to stop the, the, the promise that, that God has made, to stop the plan that, that God has. We continue throughout the Old Testament uh, with the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians. At the end of the Old Testament, they're taking over Israel. They're, they're, they're taking them into, into exile. The Jews are no longer living in the land. We get to the New Testament. We, we hear about this king named Herod who's doing the same thing. He's attacking the baby boys again and, and having all the baby boys under a certain age killed and for the purpose of trying to kill Jesus, trying to kill the Messiah, trying to kill the Christ that's been prophesied will come. And, and then finally, of course, we, we think about Jesus' life him itself, especially the end of his life, where the people come against him and they're, and they're crying out, give us Barabbas, give us this, this thief, this murderer, this, this, this evil uh, man, release him to us and, and, and keep Jesus, crucify Jesus the King. It, it's always been this way. It shouldn't be a surprise to us at all. And, and in fact, it's this way right now. It's this way right now. I was, I was reading uh, and thinking through some things here the last couple of days. And I, I'd remembered this story, and I, I looked up some of the details of it. In 2013, there was, an American, um, there, was a, there was an American evangelist pastor who went to travel to England, and he was in London, and he was preaching on the streets in London, and he was arrested for his preaching. He was arrested because what he was preaching went against uh, some anti-discrimination laws that they had passed in London. He was thrown in jail simply for preaching um, the, the gospel. There, there's a couple, I'm not sure if this has been resolved or not, but there's a couple over the last uh, several months, October, November of, of 2014, in Iowa who own a, uh, a wedding chapel. They're both, they're both ministers. The, the husband and wife are both ordained, ordained ministers. They're, they're Christians. They own this wedding chapel, and, and, and they're right now at the same time fighting this, or at least they, they were a few months ago, fighting this legal battle over whether do they have to uh, marry homosexual couples, or, or are they free not to? And the, and the city is passing this law saying you can't discriminate. If you're going to run this uh, wedding chapel, you have to, uh, have, to, have to do this. You can't preach against this. You can't act against this. Just over, over the weekend, on, on Friday, I think it was, I read a story from the Washington Post about the, um, the fire chief in, in Atlanta. You may have heard this story. The fire chief in Atlanta, pretty big town, um, the fire chief there had written this, this book and had published it himself, and, and had, had, he's a Christian and had given it out to a few people that he, that he works with, um, and, and the mayor of the city there um, fired him because of what he wrote in the book, because he's a Christian, because he was writing in the book some things against homosexuality, saying that that's a sin, basically just quoting what the Bible says about homosexuality, and, and the mayor in the city um, fired him for that. It, it's always been this way in, in the past, and it's 
It's this way now. We want to, uh, the, the world, the, the culture comes against God, the, the worldly rulers, worldly kings come against God, and they, they want to restrict how we preach, how we proclaim the truth of the gospel. Often Christians, often maybe, maybe you even, have been ridiculed for living according to God's standard, for living according to God's mandates. Often we're, we're called names, we're called holy rollers, or, or something like that, because we want to live according to what God says. That shouldn't surprise us, right? If it surprises us, what that, what that shows is that we just don't know the Bible very well, right? Because God, God promises this. Jesus promises this himself, and, and then we also read it in, in, in 2 Timothy, Timothy chapter 3. Paul said, all those who would live godly will suffer persecution. Jesus told his own disciples, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. We should not be surprised when we find ourselves at odds with powerful, influential people in the world. We shouldn't find that surprising at all. And, and then look, look at verse 3. Look at, look at what they're rebelling against. Look at why they're raging against God. Look at why they're plotting uh, against him. Verse 3, what they say is, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. What they're wanting to do is they're wanting to get rid of of all constraints, of all rules, of all of God's commands. I was, uh, I was cleaning the church last night. I'm the, I'm the janitor here, if you didn't know that. And I was cleaning the church last night, and, and I get scared here by myself. I've told you all that before. And so I put headphones in my ears and turn, turn it up real loud uh, so that I can't hear anything that's going on, although sometimes I do still hear stuff and get scared. Um, but for the most part, I try not to, and so I put earbuds in my ears and, and turn it up real loud. Um, and, but, but I don't really, I, I get kind of tired of listening to music, so I listen to, to different things. And one of my favorite things to listen to, I listen to, to lots of different things, uh, but one of my favorite things to listen to each week, the first thing I listen to every, every week, usually listen to it while I'm up here, because I come and clean up here in the sanctuary first, because it's still light outside, and I wait and get, do the, the downstairs when it's dark, so that, because um, it's scarier up here than it is downstairs. Anyway, I do up here first, so it's the first thing I listen to every week, and it, it's, this, it's this atheist, it's a, um, it's, it's, a, it's a cable access TV show, right, from Austin, Texas, called The Atheist Experience. And it's just these two atheist guys, or maybe there's one guy that's kind of the host, and then there's five or six different co-hosts that kind of rotate each, each week. And they, it's just this call-in atheist um, TV show. But there's a podcast, so I, so I listen to the audio of it. And, and different people call in. Sometimes there are atheists that call in. Sometimes there are Christians that call in. Sometimes there are other people of other religions call in, and they ask questions. And then the atheists answer those questions. And it, I, find it, I find it really fascinating what they say and, and how, they, how they make arguments against Christianity. And, and it's, it's help, I find it helpful to, to me for, for different reasons. But I was listening to that yesterday while I was cleaning here. And, and a couple of, of different things that, 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 that the guy said kind of stuck out to me. One, one thing they said was they quoted Margaret Sanger. If you don't know who that is, Margaret Sanger um, was an atheist. Um, she, she's dead now. I'm, I'm almost positive that she's dead now. But she was an atheist. And she was the founder of Planned Parenthood. Um, and, and she said all kinds of, of really bad um, racist things in, 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 in some, of her, some of her founding documents of, of Planned Parenthood. But she was an atheist. And, and they, were, they were quoting her, and they said one of her, one of her mottos or one of her mantras that, that she would say a lot was, no gods, no masters. Right? The reason she didn't want there to be a God, the reason she didn't want to believe in a God is because she didn't want God to be her master. No gods, no masters. Well, one, of the, one of the hosts last night was, was speaking, and he said that one of, one of his favorite parts about being an atheist is not having any rules that we must follow. We can kind of do our own thing. We, can, we don't have to do anything. There's no mandates that we, we have to be this way or we have to do that. 
He said, one of my favorite things about being an atheist is there are no rules that we have to follow. We don't have to do anything. And, and, there, and, and, and he's saying this, and he's quoting Margaret Sanger as if rules are, are bad things. As if rules are bad things. I remember someone, uh, I remember hearing, hearing a friend um, talk about this one time, and he was, he was saying often, even just think about the way that we get things um, advertised to us. Often in our culture, you get mailers, or, or you get different things that you're asked to, to sign up for, to join, and, and one, of the, one of the selling points of it sometimes is no rules, right? And, and, and in our culture, that seems like a bad thing. That, se- uh, that seems like a good thing. It seems like that would bring freedom, no rules. We can do anything we want to do. And, and yet we're, as Christians, that, that's not anything that, that we should be believing at all. This is, this is the lie that Satan brought to, to Eve. He said, when he came to, to Eve in the garden, remember what he said, did God really say you can't eat from this tree? Did God really give you a rule? And Eve said, yeah, we're not supposed to eat from this one tree. And because if we do, then, then we'll surely die. And Satan said, no, that's not true. That's not true. God's holding out on you. You shouldn't obey that rule. You'll be, you'll be better off. You'll be more happy. You'll be, you'll, be, you'll, you'll be more joyous if you don't follow that rule, if you do whatever you want to do, right? I was reading, uh, it's been a while ago now, but I was reading from, um, from uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon. He was writing about Psalm 119. And, and I, I wrote this, this quote down on a little note card, and I taped it to the, to the mirror in my bathroom. And it says, settle it in your hearts as a first postulate and sure rule of practical science that holiness is happiness. And it is our wisdom to first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Settle it in your heart as a first principle, as, as, a, as a foundational belief, a foundational thing that you're going to believe and stake your life on, that holiness is happiness. There is no happiness apart from holiness, right? That, that's what Satan came and told Eve. You don't have to obey what God says. You can be happy outside of obeying what God says. Well, no, we don't believe that. As Christians, we believe that, that what leads us to happiness is the, the, the holiness that, that God prescribes, right? We believe that when God gives us rules and God gives us mandates and God gives his law, that it's not something bad. It's not something he's, he's trying to, to stop us from, from enjoying life. Those are our boundaries. Those are boundaries that, 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 that teach us and show us and lead us in what the good life is. But the world is, is against that. And, and these rulers explicitly, they're saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast off their cords from us. Let, us. let us not be bound by how God and his king wants us to be bound. I would ask you maybe the first question tonight. Do you embrace God's rules? Do you embrace God's guidance? Do you embrace God's morality? Or do you chafe against it like our culture does? These kings were, were very much so prideful, very much so uh, you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do my own thing. You're not the boss of me. You're not the authority over me. Do we as Christians, do we willingly and, and, and joyously and, and, and happily submit to the authority of our God, submit to the authority of our king? Well, look at verse 4. Let's, let's look, at, look at our king. Look at God and his king, God's ruler. Verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Look at God's reaction to their state. Of, of what they're doing. He laughs at them. He mocks them. He's not shaken. He's not upset. He's not concerned. He's not nervous at all, right? They're raging against him, and God's calm. They're plotting and, and planning uh, against him, and, and God's sitting on his throne as if nothing is, is wrong. They're angry. They're, they're, they're scheming. God's laughing at them. 
As, as far as I could find, there's only three places in the Bible where God laughs. Psalm 2, Psalm 59, verse 8, Psalm 37, verse 13, and all three of those places are not good laughter. All three of those places are God laughing at someone and, and God, like it says here, holding them in derision. It's almost like God's mocking them. It's almost like God is, 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 is amused at the fact that they think they can come against him. Almost as if someone who's like a grown man who, who's really good at, at, at something, really good at some sport maybe, and a little kid comes and challenges him. And, and the, the man's like, yeah, right, you're not going to come against me. What are you, what are you thinking, right? God says, I've already set my king. He said, I've already set my king on, on Zion, my holy hill, verse 6. It's already done. It's already done. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about a, about a teacher and a student, right? I'm, I'm a teacher. I teach at a school. And it's kind of the same thing as if a student were going were gonna to try to come and, 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 and try, to, try, to, try to force me to do something, right? Well, the, the student has no power, right? The teacher in the classroom has a power. Or like a player coming against a coach. Right? The player's not going to tell the coach what the coach is going to do. The coach is going to tell the player what to do. And if the, coach tries to go, if the player tries to go against the coach, well, that's not going to last very long. The coach has that power. One of, my, one of my least favorite things to ever have to do is to call and talk to someone at a bank or a cable company or a cell phone company. I hate that. If I ever get charged some kind of fee or there's something that I think is wrong with my bill or something like that, I hate having to call and deal with that because you have no power, right? You're talking to a customer service person that can't really do anything either, and then if you get to, to speak with a, with a supervisor or something like that, in the end, whatever they say goes. I mean, what do you, in the end, they can just turn your phone off if they want to, right? If you're, if you're disputing a bill, you have no power against them. And, and that, that's kind of what these people are uh, uh, against God. God's laughing at them. He's holding them in derision. He's saying, yeah, right, you're, you're, you're plotting. And, and even it, it kind of gives it away there in verse 1. It says they're, they're, the people are, are plotting in vain, right? Their plotting is going to go nowhere. God's the king. God has set his ruler there already. In the, in the history, there have been several people who have, who have tried to do this, right? There was a guy named Voltaire. You may you may have heard of him, you may not have heard of him, but Voltaire was a philosopher. He wrote, he wrote some, uh, some, some fiction books and, and different things like that. Uh, but Voltaire was this philosopher, he was an atheist, and he, he's famous for saying uh, that within 50 years of his lifetime, um, the Bible will be kind of done away with. It will have kind of spent its course, it will be gone, and no one will really be paying attention to the, to the Bible anymore. Right? From the best I could tell, his house right now, he lived in France, but he also lived in Geneva before that, and his house in Geneva right now is being used by the Geneva Bible uh, Society to, as a warehouse to store Bibles and to distribute Bibles, right? And, and he had this, this big quote where he was going to outlast the Bible and, and, and these kind of things. I think some of you may remember, I'm not old enough to remember, some of you may be, but you may remember the Beatles. You may remember uh, the Beatles saying that they're bigger than Jesus, right? These foolish things, Pharaoh thinking, Pharaoh thinking that he could, uh, he, could, he could stop God's plan. Pharaoh thinking that he could uh, do away with what God had already set up. Even think about Satan, right? Think about Satan in the book of Job. Satan can't do anything without coming and getting God's permission first, right? In the end, God tells us clearly, in the end, Jesus will break them. Verse 7 Verse, uh, verse 9, I mean, he says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In the end, Jesus will break them. He will shatter them. 
This is the wrath of our Lord at his second coming. It's what we read about in, in Revelation 19 to begin the service tonight. So we have these, these, these worldly kings, these people that are coming against God, that are going to do their thing. I'm, I'm setting myself up. I'm powerful. I'm going to do what I want to do. You can't tell me what to do. You've got God in the heavens. Calm as can be, laughing at them, holding them in derision, making fun of them. He says, my king's here. My king's on the throne. You may not recognize his authority right now, but one day you will. One day you'll recognize him. And so what do we do? What is our response? Look at verse 10. His wrath is coming. His wrath is coming quickly. But there's still time to bow in submission and to receive mercy from the king. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Notice, notice very quickly, verse 10, this, this call, this, this, uh, this encouragement to, to, to repent, to, to bow down, to submit to the king, it's addressed to the very ones that are coming against God, right? Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. These are the same kings that were coming against God in verse 1. We see God's mercy here as he's calling them to bow down to Jesus before it's too late. His wrath is quickly kindled, but there's still time now. He tells them uh, to kiss the son in verse 12. This is a, an imagery of like a king on his throne and someone coming and bowing before the king and kissing the king's ring to show submission, to show allegiance, to show, uh, to show that, 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 that you're putting yourself under the king. Laying down your arms, pledging allegiance to him. This is what God calls wisdom. Now will kings be wise. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And then look at the last line. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Receive this blessing in Christ. One of the, one of the favorite lines that, I, that I've read in a while, I think I've quoted it here, here before in a, in a different context, but there's a, a, a guy that's, that's commenting on this passage, and he says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in Christ, right? And he says, on, on that day, on the day when Christ returns, Revelation 19, right, on that day when Jesus returns, there will be no refuge from Christ. There will only be refuge in Christ. There's no hiding place. There's nowhere to go other than Christ. Right? We just sang this song, nothing but the blood. There's no answer to our sin problem. There's no answer to our rebellion. There's no answer to our setting ourselves up as our own kings. There's no answer to that but the blood of Jesus. There is no refuge from Christ, only refuge in Christ. This day's here. This day is now. Right? It says his, his wrath is quickly kindled. We don't know when this time will end, but it's here now. And, and if, if any of us have never bowed to him, if any of us have never, um, have never uh, submitted our, our, our wills to him, submitted ourselves to him, then, then I beg you to do that today. What are some implications? I, I want to I list uh, quickly, the, the time's almost gone, but I want to list quickly four implications that, that we can pull from this. Number one, is we see here clearly the security, the, the, the stability of God's kingdom. Nothing will stand against God's kingdom. Nothing will come against it. Jesus' reign is not in question at all. His reign is, is there, it's sure, it's not in question, no matter what it might look like in the world. No matter what it might seem like to us today. Maybe, maybe you are working and, and maybe people at your work don't respect Christianity. Maybe people at your work mock you, mock your faith. Jesus is still on the throne. Jesus is still reigning. Maybe the same thing at school. Maybe people make fun of you at, at, at school for being a Christian. 
Jesus is still reigning. Perhaps the day may come when just simply for us being Christians and, and, and taking a stand for what we believe, the day may come when we uh, are, are, are forced to go to jail for that. If so, Jesus is still on his throne. There, there are Christians, there, we have brothers and sisters all over the world right now who are in jail. Right now we have Christians all over the world who are, who are, who are suffering, uh, being killed, losing family members simply for the sake of Christ. Even so, Jesus is still reigning. Jesus is still the king. It's interesting to, to think for a minute about Acts chapter 4. If you know anything about, about that, that, those early chapters of Acts, what's happened is Jesus has ascended into heaven. He, he's gone up to be with the Father. Uh, the, the, the apostles, the disciples begin to preach, Acts chapter 2, uh, and, and then Peter begins to, to preach in, in different ones. And what's happening in Acts chapter 4, where this, where this uh, verse is quoted, where this chapter is quoted, um, it's interesting in the context. Um, Peter, James, and John have been arrested. They've been beaten for, for, for preaching Christ, for preaching the gospel. They've been released, and they go gather with the other believers, and they begin to pray. And, and that's where they quote this in, this, in this context of persecution. And, and they knew that even though they were undergoing this, this, this persecution, they've been, they've been commanded not to preach anymore. They've been beaten for preaching. And, and even still, their, their confidence was, our king is on the throne, our, our savior's reigning, and we're going to continue preaching his gospel. We, we mentioned a, a few people earlier. Um, think about Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh in Egypt in Exodus. Pharaoh, his, his plan was to, to drown all the, all the baby boys, to kill all the baby boys, and Pharaoh himself ended up being drowned in the Red Sea and the, and, and the Israelites survived. Same thing with the people of Noah's time and, and Noah. They, they, they derided him, they made fun of him, they would not listen to him, they would not follow him, and, and yet Noah and his family are the ones that survived. Haman, in, in the book of Esther that I mentioned before, Haman, in the end, was uh, hung on, on the gallows that he had built for the Israelite people to be hung on. Our, our Savior is reigning. Our King is reigning. Jesus is on his throne, and his kingdom is stable. His kingdom is secure. Nothing will come against it. Nothing will stand against it. Many things will come against it. Nothing will stand against it. A second implication is we should, we should take sin and we should take rebellion seriously in our own lives and in the lives of, of people around us, in our own individual lives, in the lives of, of other people in our church, and in the lives of those around us. Sin is serious. Jesus will have no unrighteousness in his kingdom. Jesus takes sin very seriously. It will be completely shattered. Let us not play with sin. Let us not come near sin at all. I had a professor in college where I got the idea of taking that note card and taping it to my, to my mirror. I had a, had a professor in college that did that. I want to read to you the note that he wrote himself when he was in college and had this taped to his mirror so that he, he read it to himself every morning as he was getting dressed. He says, and as far as I know, he, he wrote this himself. He says, do you hate sin already this morning? I mean, do you seethe with hatred and disgust against it, loathing it in its every manifestation in your own soul and character? If not, you had best pause for a moment to look sin in the face long enough for its mirage of beauty to pass away so that you may be shocked and horrified anew at what you see. Do not flirt with sin today. Sin is a whore, and she seeks to seduce you and to destroy you. Think for a moment how quickly sin can wreck your life, your family, your ministry, and even the reputation of your Lord. You dare not risk this. Do not walk even close lest you fall in. There's no room for toleration, no place for compromise. Every sin weakens your character and paves the way for larger sin. 
Sin is not passive. It is an aggressive cancer eating away at your soul. Take up your weapons then and resist today. Do not let up. Do not give up. Spare not. Though you are weary, do not surrender. You will have rest in the peace of purity and in the calm of a clean conscience. Do we take sin seriously enough? Do we take sin that seriously? Do we see sin for what it is? Do we see sin the way that our king sees sin? Second implication, we should see sin very seriously. The third implication is this should affect the way that we do evangelism. This should affect the way that we speak to people about the gospel, right? We want to be careful with this, and we don't want to take this too far, but, but it should change the way that we do evangelism. Right? Think about the way that the New Testament um, presents preaching. Think about the way that Jesus preached. We're told in Matthew that John the Baptist came preaching. What did he preach? It says that he preached, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus comes on the scene. What did Jesus preach? We're told that Jesus preached, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? This, is, this is how we should do evangelism. Now again, we don't want to take this too far. We don't, we don't want to be um, we don't want to be um, um, aggressive in, in, in any way, and, and yet we shouldn't present the gospel as come give God a chance, right? We shouldn't present the gospel as God's in heaven, he's, he, he, he's charging people to, um, to, to, to please believe in him, he's up there just kind of waiting and wondering and thinking, is anyone going to accept me? I, I, I wish that they would, I, I so wish that they would accept me. He, he's, not, he's not waiting, he's not wondering, he's not hoping that people choose him. God is charging people to repent for the kingdom is at hand. God's charging people to repent and to flee to Christ where there's still time. Because if not, sin will be dealt with. And we should, we should, we should, that, that should affect the way that we evangelize people. We should present God as a holy God that has been wronged and, and, and who's, who is coming to, uh, to make that wrong right and, and yet has given us a, a time of, of mercy, a time of grace, a time of acceptance if we'll simply fall down before him. Humble ourselves before him and, and cry out for his mercy. And then the fifth thing, it should, it should, we should be struck by, this, by the security, the stability of God's kingdom. We should be struck by the seriousness of sin and, and rebellion against God. We should, it, this should inform how we, how we evangelize people. And then the fifth thing this should do within us, the fifth implication of this, is it should, it should create in us a longing for our Savior to return. It should create in us a longing for the future return of our King, for the day that, that his throne descends to earth, for the day that his kingdom comes when sin is done away with completely. That's, a, that's going to be a bad day for many people. And yet it's going to be such a good day for those who are in him. Such a good day for, for believers. One of my favorite hymns, not my favorite hymn, but one of my favorite hymns is It Is Well With My Soul, Right? And, and for a long time, I think I've mentioned this before even, even also, but for a long time, I didn't really understand the last verse, right? The last verse says, and I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget it. The last verse says, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. The Lord shall descend. And then it says, even so, it is well with my soul, Right? For a long time, I didn't really understand, what does that mean? Why does it say even so? It should be, Jesus is coming back. It should be, well, of course, Jesus is coming back. It's well with my soul. It doesn't say that. It says Jesus is coming back. The trump shall, descend, shall resound. The Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Right? 
The reason it says that, the reason it says even so, is because that's going to be a bad day for those who are outside of Christ. We're told in, in the New Testament, even it's going to be such a bad day that people are going to be running and crying for the mountains to fall on them. They would rather be crushed by falling mountains than face the wrath of the Lamb. Right? But for those who are in Christ, it's well with my soul. There's no refuge from Christ, but there is refuge in Christ. Flee to Christ if you haven't. If you have, rejoice in, in that. Um, and, and let that affect how we, how we live. Let that affect how we treat sin in our own lives and, and treat sin in the lives of, of those around us. Let's pray. Father God, we are, or I am, um, struck tonight by your holiness, struck tonight by your righteousness. Father, I pray that you would forgive me for, for not taking sin seriously enough. Father, forgive me for thinking that it's not as big a deal as it is. Uh, Father, forgive me for, for, for thinking that it's not, as, um, it's, it's not as big a deal to you as it is. Father, I pray that you would help me to understand this better. And God, I pray that you would help me to, um, to live in light of this. Father, I thank you for our King. God, even, even this passage gives us a, a little bit of, of, of rightful pride in, in our King. Our King Jesus, the righteous Lord, the one who is in control, the one who is um, holding us in his, in his hand. Father, the one who is um, managing our lives. God, I thank you that, that we have uh, confidence in that. Father, I thank you that that gives us confidence that no matter what happens to us, good or bad, God, we know that our Lord is in control. We know that our King's in control. And God, we know that he's a good King. He's a good king. He's a righteous king. He's a holy king. But he's a good king and a merciful king and a gracious king. And Father, we thank you for that. I pray, God, that, that, that we would see that clearly. And I pray, Father, that we would devote ourselves uh, to him even more fully. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.